Hello and welcome to The Real Maxime Podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, and private investor. Accidents with our electronic devices can be more than just inconvenient. They can disrupt our daily lives. With our growing reliance on technology and online communications, it's essential to ensure our devices are protected against unexpected repair or replacement costs. In 2022, the mobile device insurance market was valued at $31.5 billion. By 2030, it's projected to grow over $75 billion. This growth is driven by an increase in incidents like unintentional damages and thefts of mobile phones worldwide. Our guest today is Eric Schneider, co-founder and co-CEO of Occam, a fintech company that offers a straightforward, affordable phone and electronic device insurance. They've revolutionized the insurance workflow to prioritize a seamless end user experience. While Eric's background spans from jet engine engineering to venture investing, it was a poor insurance claim experience faced by his co-founder, Jared Breyer, that inspired the creation of ACO. This experience underscores the reality that many insurance companies haven't yet fully embraced machine learning, modern UX, and data analytics in their strategies to streamline the purchasing and claim processes. It became clear there's a significant potential in the market waiting to be explored. With electronic device demographics dominated by millennials and Gen Z, customer experience and high net promoter scores are critical. Digital natives expect instant convenience, all delivered through a highly attractive and intuitive interface. Throughout our conversation, we dive into the specifics of device insurance underwriting and the importance of fully owning the claims experience and managing it entirely while building channel distribution and repair shops to spur adoption. Aqua's digital first approach eliminates the need for cumbersome paperwork and lengthy resolution, providing customers with a hassle-free experience. Eric holds an MBA from the Harvard Business School and graduated summa cum laude with a bachelor's in mechanical engineering and a minor in mathematics from Virginia Tech. He also really enjoys taking an async standardized test. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So I grew up in Maryland, a little bit north of Baltimore, and I uh, grew up with one younger sister and my parents who had pretty different career paths. So my mom was actually an engineer. She was an engineer for over 35 years. It was a pretty early in computer science, but I guess back then it was really more hardware computer engineering than it really was as much coding and, and software. So think about computer science today. And then my dad was more on the finance business side of things. So as I was growing up, I kind of had this nice dichotomy of different perspectives. And so there's two kind of, I think, main themes throughout my childhood into high school. One was math and engineering and building things. And the other was kind of volunteering, giving back and mentorship, which really did guide a lot of how I learned, but also later on when I eventually went into college and then beyond, it kind of shaped a lot of that. But they were both, my parents were pretty influential there. So that was a bit north of Baltimore. And then eventually moved, you know, to, went on to college, Virginia Tech, where I did engineering for undergrad. Were your parents pushy a lot in academic success or were you self-determined and, and on your own trajectory wanting to succeed on your own? That's yeah, a funny question. I think I was actually more the former initially. I like sports and games and video games and competition, but was, and I was always good at math and just like building things, but that didn't necessarily translate into being really excited about schoolwork. I was just naturally a bit pretty good at math and technology type related classes. So it was a little bit easier, but it wasn't 
my internal drive. Like an example, my mom, when I was younger, we, when I was looking for colleges, I was like, oh, I'm going to just stay local. I can get good SAT scores, good enough grades. I can get into a great engineering school locally. And she was like, no, basically kind of dragged me along to look at different schools around um, at least the East Coast. So <laughs> to make at least me, you know, make sure I knew that there was options available. That makes sense. I know that if you're somewhat like math inclined, it's usually because you're gravitating towards like problem, solution, finding the solution, move on, right? And so I personally always, like I struggle a lot with like sitting still throughout entire classes. You know, once you got the point, you got the point, right? And that was actually a challenge for me. And so I can relate there. I would say two things that were very important in my upbringing were software. My dad was a computer scientist. And the fact that I was exposed to it at a very young age, wrote my first lines of code at like age seven or something. And so being immersed in that world has stayed with me all of my career. And then the other thing is, I was born in France. My father's French speaking. And so I learned English growing up in Scotland at a very young age. And that was also very helpful for me because now an American citizen and I live in America and and we live in an English-speaking world. But if you think about it, those are two languages, right? Software, I mean, there's many different languages in English that are set the tone for what our era was going to be. And certainly that was very helpful. So college, you majored in engineering. Did you find that being in college was all that it was cracked up to be? Or Because I know from my own perspective, again, I really liked some of the topics and I, I majored in econ finance. I found that math applied to these real things, something that I could latch onto and like really relate with to. How was it for you? Like, did you want to just finish and go out and start working or were you happy in the academic setting? Yeah, I think I actually found a lot of similarities too. I think one thing when I was younger that why maybe I wasn't as, I, I was always good at academics, but wasn't necessarily like pushing the boundaries on the academic side. I was I was just very competitive. And naturally, a lot of my friends were more into sports and video games you know, then we were competitive in the sense of grades. And so in an interesting way, when I got to college, well, now everyone is very interested in how well you're doing. And also, as you mentioned with like math, the language of math, right? I really liked the ability to, as you said, you have a problem, you understand how to solve it, whether it be pattern recognition or thinking about kind of how to logically go through some kind of problem set. You get to a solution, you know if you're right or wrong or not, and you can move on. And that like in that kind of enjoyment of being correct a lot and getting to the right answer and knowing kind of there is that solidified ending was kind of that rewarding part of all the classes because you can kind of know the cycle of studying for classes, making sure you're correctly identifying the patterns. And I think in college, they said my parents described it as well as how I really grew into being very academically inclined and really pushing myself in terms of academics. And I think it was in part because I really found a lot of enjoyment out of it. But also, I think just looking back a little bit, my competitive nature of being like, well, everyone else cares a lot about grades right now. So maybe that's something I should care about a lot too. Yeah. And so that was, I think, enjoyable. The, the one thing with math, which is interesting, the language of math, where I think early on, I liked math for a little more math's sake. But as I went into college, I actually thought I was going to double major in math and engineering. And then I realized within kind of one to two years that some of the more theory-based classes of math I didn't enjoy as much because I didn't see as many of the practical applications, at least myself, right? In like, for example, mechanical or aerospace engineering, which I ended up really pushing more into. So that's, it's kind of transformed what I was looking at a little bit more on that side. 
Yeah. And you also, you like taking standardized tests, right? It's like, it, I wouldn't call it necessarily a hobby, but like you're actually good at it and you actually enjoy taking it, which is probably the opposite of like most people on the planet. So talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. And I think it's exactly as the theme of competitive game oriented in a way for me, like tests or it's the same as whether it be standardized or in the classroom setting either for a specific class. Tests are kind of this very, and it's like think while, so like math, there's a very clear, you know, score and answer and you can be right or wrong and you can really, really push to be kind of the best at that. Um, it involves potentially pattern recognition, strategy, kind of determination. And I think it's more of that kind of competitive mindset and just like logic and strategic mindset, which I really enjoy. And obviously kind of later on that came back after college, but I think I first realized it a lot more in college for sure. I like the fact that you've used the word repeatedly in a few of your sentences, language of math and mathematics being a language. I think too many times in early grades, I think a lot of teachers, many of them, I think fail in explaining exactly what that is and fail to explain really how most of the things that we are exposed to in our day-to-day lives really are underpinned by fundamental mathematical principles, whether it's the device that you're using every day, whether it's the apartment or house that you live in and how it's structured and how it's measured, down to the most basic structure in nature, which is the triangle and understanding dynamics of like how you measure a triangle. Why is it that it's like the base unit of everything you see and perceive out in the world? So I like that you use that word language because I wish a lot of teachers and professors really made it clear that it is a language. And I think as such, as opposed to seeing it as something that is A, very abstract, B, daunting for a lot of people, well, you know, what is a language? It's something that allows you to communicate. It allows you to interface with things. And once you get that, then you get over the hump of, okay, well, this is not as daunting as, as it was. So it's, it's a language. It's like, and then you can understand like how your mortgage works and how to measure the area of a triangle and how to price insurance, which we'll get into, right? Right, yeah. And so I think it's very important. And I like the fact that you use that unprompted, you use that word. So talk to us about your first foray in in a professional life and what do you gravitate towards? And what I'm really trying to understand here is what do you think really prepared you for what you're doing? Because I I do think, of course, hindsight's twenty twenty, but you could kind of piece it together along the way. Like I know, I remember I sat in my car with my friends when we were like 16 years old. And I was like, one day I'm going to build a company with my best friend who at the time I did not know. I was talking to another best friend at the time. And I actually ended up going to college and starting an enterprise software company with my best friend who's still my best friend. So I think on some level, like, yeah, you manifest things, but that's just me. So I'm just curious from your perspective, like what was your mindset? What are the things you gravitate towards at an early career? Yeah. And I think the math as language is somewhat of an interesting transition into that because in general, when you think about something as let's say a language or the building blocks, then it allows you to really challenge the why and understand, okay, why is something the way this is? Or why is this the way that is? And then how do you use that to then solve problems or build things? So it's much more of a solution oriented mindset. It really logical type of mindset. And I think I didn't necessarily know it back then, but I think that kind of mindset is really a lot of the driver, I think, in a lot of the decisions. And then ultimately within 
the business endeavors with current company and then obviously your previous work. And then in general, just how can I approach and think about life as well as career? But when I first, so to get, kind of get back to the transition part, but when I first entered the workforce, I was actually doing jet engine design at General Electric. So I was initially in their engineering leadership program. It's designed to be a three-year rotational program where you also get a master's in their mechanical engineering, aerospace engineering, or computer science. And about six months in or so, and I was initially based in Cincinnati, and about six months in, I think I realized I really liked a lot of the engineering problem solving. But then what I really lacked was the understanding, and this gets back again to the building blocks, but the understanding of what I was doing and how that impacted the company and sense the industry overall. I tried to understand a little more about, you know, at a high level, what, how the company was operating, what I was doing to impact that, and even sense like the P&L or how does the company making money. And what I quickly learned at a company like General Electric and talking to some executives is to get to be involved in those decisions or understand that, it takes decades. And that was something that really frustrated me and almost in a way made me claustrophobic to the whole environment of a very straightforward path that you almost see what the next 10, 20 years looks like if you just keep going down this straight line. And I didn't love that experience. It made me pretty scared actually about kind of that that situation. And so I ended up actually switching and somewhat serendipitously met someone that was uh, in a social kind of environment actually that was at a consulting firm. And that was kind of my introduction to, oh, interesting. There's a lot of these management consulting firms that work with these massive companies that help them with strategy, insights, mergers, acquisitions, their, their P&L, different things like that. So you really get that kind of exposure without waiting so long to get, you know, you know, to rise up within a company. And so I thought that would be a really nice transition. So I ended up kind of applying there and working at a company called LDK Consulting, which is a spinoff of Bain. And so I worked there for a few years and really, really enjoyed that experience of kind of just getting one exposed to a lot of people that weren't necessarily engineers, but kind of using that engineering mindset in the very logical, strategic approach to things, but in, in more of a business and strategy setting. Do you think that some of the, the anchoring principles that you learn as a consultant are still very applicable? And talk to us about the difference between going on a project and taking the outside-in perspective, which on some level is always a little bit easier because you're not in the trenches, you're not burdened by the endogeneity of what is happening within your business, with your co-founders, co-workers, employees. You can kind of take that fresh view from the outside and immediately, if you have a mind that functions in the way that a consultant's mind is wired, you will see some of the issues and the levers you can action. Do you find that you're able to abstract yourself sometimes from the business and draw from that experience? Yeah, I think you are able to. It's certainly obviously harder when you're in the weeds, very specifically right in the company. But trying to, I think one of the ways to do it is when you think about some of the evaluation frameworks or how you thought about things, it's not always going to almost never applies apples to apples, but taking some of those understandings and learnings of how you would approach this situation and then layer, trying to layer that in with your own understanding is really important. And then also combine with that, the other, you know, for example, my co-founder and our COL, which is currently kind of like our main executive team, really together, me using kind of those types of thoughts and frameworks to challenge and discuss with them as well on either their day-to-day work or us as a company overall. So it really creates the right types of discussions that then facilitate, 
ideally the best answers to move forward. I think it does take a lot of the, the learnings. How did you decide to eventually go to business school? What was the impetus there? And did you feel like it was a necessary transition? Were you trying to plug in some gaps there? Did you want to build a network? Like, where were the main motivations? There's a lot of debate around the validity of the MBA and why it's important or not. And I think in the end, it's still a very valid product. I got my MBA. I think it was well worth it. I've built lifelong relationships. I've learned a ton and I've got a great brand on my resume. It's definitely not only a door opener, but things that I use on a daily basis. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think you laid it out pretty perfectly in terms of the very similar reasons for me. I think for it helps certain people more than others. I think, for example, I went to, I studied engineering at a more engineering focused school. So as a result of that, the network of people from undergrad is not going to be as broad, right, as you'd have otherwise. So I think it, it is certainly a mix of the both the business learnings, the brand of a kind of more business or broader school, a little bit of time to actually explore what all these other people have done with their lives and with their career paths and thoughts they have. So you really get a lot of exposure of all these different types of paths from really high performing people to evaluate kind of what you think is right. And then particularly for me, I kind of at the time when I was in consulting, I really started liking early stage technology. So I was for the company, I was one of the leaders in kind of drone and air taxis and kind of thinking about that space. So I helped us write some white papers on it, went to kind of the Uber uh, conference they had at the time for that, and generally tried to work on travel and transport types of companies when I was there. And so, and while I was doing that, I really started getting more and more interested in the early stage technology and kind of companies that were in this space. So I also started to have this sense that maybe I want to actually start working or either build my own company or start working in an early stage company or just being involved in that early stage ecosystem. And so all of those things combined together made me think that, okay, it's at least certainly worth applying and really moving forward with the process and seeing if I can kind of match, if the school I can get into can match really that the desire I had and the outcome of what I wanted to get out of the school. Yeah. And of course, being the test nerd that you are, you probably aced it. It sounds like you got into probably one of the best outcomes that I always say, if you're going to get an MBA, try to get into a top five school. Right. Because it's a very uneven distribution in terms of like the actual intangible return that you'll get on that investment. And I say this, you know, I went to University of Chicago Booth, but obviously Harvard, great, great school and a fantastic network. I'm always amazed. And this is not just the lore and the legend. One thing that I think HBS has, and I see it in my friends who attended, is this notion that, you know, you could reach out to any alum out there in the world, no matter what their position in the world is, and they will take 15, 30 minutes to speak to you. And it's just, it's almost like a guiding principle. And I think other business schools, I think, have moved towards that model. But you think about how it really pioneered this way of crafting a class really with the network in mind. I think they set the tone, right, for really ultimately what the social capital angle of how you should see this step in your life. Like, yes, the academics are amazing. Like, again, you could study like some of the best things and with some of the best professors in the world. But what you're really doing is you're buying social capital. By the way, there's something, and not to dwell on this, one of the things I've also come to realize is, and I'm sure you'll see it gradually, is the further ahead in your career, the more accretive 
and the more powerful the network is. In other words, like five years out, everyone's kind of trying to find their footing. And what I find is 10, 15, 20 years out, people are actually, some of them have crushed it. Some of them have done really, really well, but everyone's very established and in positions of decision-making power, whatever their area is. And so it makes the network incredibly valuable, right? Right. At least that's been my experience. How do you first start developing the idea around the business? And what is the gestation phase there? And what are the main triggers in terms of starting a business? Yeah. And I think this, the kind of first business started before business school actually really, I think relates to this, which is really starting with kind of those, the problems and pain points. And you hear it a lot is really always start kind of from the problem pain point versus a fancy solution you think will work without really understanding the customer and the problem and pain point. And that perfect example of this is, as you mentioned, really like tests, you know, in that kind of more competitive like kind of strategic way. So once I finished the GMAT, the second theme I mentioned from childhood, like about mentoring and volunteering actually came back because I was inclined to, and my mom was actually the first in her family to go to college. So not only did she kind of study computer science when as one of the, probably the first women in that kind of class, 35, 40 years ago, studying computer science, but also was the first in her family to go to college. So always a really inspirational person to me as well as my father as well. But she was very inspirational in that sense of kind of gratitude, mentoring, giving back, helping people that didn't have the same opportunities. And so that was always a consistent theme. And so when I had the opportunity, I was like, okay, I like this test. I know a lot of people don't. Let me see if I can help people. And so I reached out to some of these major test prep companies and all of them are free to pay model, right? They don't have any nonprofit arm or, or just volunteer service for people that can't afford tutoring. And so they're in line kind of the pain point and problem. I know a lot of people couldn't get this help, but really needed it. And so I started a nonprofit called Grad Mentors. It's a 501c3, still operational. Today, I'm more kind of an advisor now, but we basically were a mentoring matching platform. So we created some free resources as well as matched volunteer mentors with mentees for started with the GMAT, but then expanded to the GRE and are kind of considering now expanding to other grad school test types. But the really kind of simple principle and idea, but building that was really, really, really exciting. And then ultimately kind of led to when I was in business school. And also, by the way, I think everything you mentioned was extremely well said around the kind of reasons and the value of business school and the accretive value over time in the sense of like learning relationships and kind of that network that you really develop. I've heard it from a lot of older alumni, but also as kind of seeing it live, right? As the longer kind of even in the short term, every year after year, you almost, you already almost see that kind of value increase. But when I was in business school, I really wanted to kind of dive into that entrepreneurial ecosystem. And so initially was on the venture capital side with a firm called 25 Madison in New York. And actually that was during COVID. So no traveling anymore, which is part of the business school experience, but wasn't as much part of mine. And so I said, okay, let me still take advantage, obviously, of a lot of the things that you can do. And, and I actually took a semester off to spend more time with them working, thinking about the early stage world, right? Both investing, operating, or incubating their ideas because they were a venture studio. So they did a mix of investing and incubating ideas. So you met your current co-founder. Talk to us about how that happened. One of the things that is very important when assessing an opportunity, and actually this applies to the entrepreneur or entrepreneurs who are the first and biggest and largest investors in the venture 
they're parting with both their time and opportunity cost of making a living and they're deciding to forego. And so one of the things that investors look at at an early stage is the team. What brought people together? What are the relationships there of work, collaboration? Even better if there's a common joint track record of having it done things and accomplished things together through good and bad times. Talk to us a little bit about the foundation from a team perspective. Yeah. So while I was in business school, working my head into the venture side during COVID, obviously, naturally, there was a lot of online groups and activities that were going on. And so my co-founder, he was an entrepreneur who actually built several businesses before, one in kind of the travel space for young adults, and then one in the advertising, marketing, web design space, an agency there. And so I actually met him through a kind of alumni group of our fraternity. So actually AEPI, which is a Jewish fraternity, during COVID, there was a big online group focused on business activities. And so it kind of came out, he was working on this idea by himself related to electronic protection because he had a bad experience himself and he's just used to building great products with great branding and experiences related to them. And so he just had kind of this idea, started developing it. And then I connected with him. And for the first month or two, we were just chatting nonstop about it. Just, you know, nonstop texting. I think our first call was supposed to be 30 minutes, turned out to be three hours because we kind of just really collaborated around this idea, had a lot of great ideation together. And I think we realized throughout the first kind of month of talking about the idea, thinking about if we'd be kind of good fits to really join together to make this much, much obviously to really push it forward, really to be kind of besides just him thinking about the idea and working on it by himself, but really pushing us forward. That was, we realized we had really good complementary skill sets. One, worked really well together. And I think also really important is that we could appreciate, understand each other's logic and judgment, even if we didn't agree, which we often have logical discussions around disagreements. But I think that if you can't work together in a collaborative, logical way, then it becomes really frustrating and hard because if you can't appreciate the other person's thought process or logic, then you kind of just get to really, really strong tension points. So early on, we kind of realized that we that a lot of the things that that fit worked well, and we spent a month or two figuring that out, which I think was super important in the beginning and not just jumping right in, because we wanted to make sure we were kind of that good fit together, which then kind of from there started, we raised the seed round shortly after that, and then we can talk about the rest of the story. But that was that was kind of the very, very beginning. Yeah, that chemistry, that finding the non-overlapping skills in a partner, in a co-founder. One of the things I think is overlooked is just running. It takes literally like 30 minutes of your life, like running personality tests. There's a really good ones. Like if you take two Enneagram tests, you will see, are these two personalities that really fit and dovetail, which is very, very needed, right? Within a team like this, like you don't want two people vying for the same roles and activities and tasks. Uh, that will result in a conflict at some point, right? And some teams are are better than others at dealing with that. Like again, I always use the example, you think about the Coinbase documentary, you, you very clearly see at some point that the founders are able to work through their issues and then decide to part ways. I mean, of course, there was a great opportunity for Fred to leave Coinbase, but clearly at some point they realized they did have a lot of overlapping skills and just wasn't going to work within the context of Coinbase. And so that's very important. So like one of the things, whenever I have the chance, 
in a due diligence process is to ask for those personality tests. You know, when you're doing a buyout, you certainly are going to do all that work, especially at the executive level. But for people out there thinking about partnering with someone, even someone they know really well, because you might be biased in your relationship with that person, just do it. Take 15 minutes. And the best thing that can happen is you find out that you have fundamentally overlapping or incompatible profiles for the purposes of what you're trying to build. It's better to find it now than a couple years in. You know, we see it right now, like it's a tough environment. It's a tough fundraising environment. Teams are under a tremendous amount of stress and that's when you get tested. That's when the cohesion of that initial trust and team gets tested. So that's also why I think it's, I always like to start with that and start understanding team in a business. So in terms of the inception, what was the initial thesis, right? I think in terms of purpose, okay, and then problem, what's your solution? And then why at that point in time did you think that it was a sizable enough opportunity to go after? Yeah. And one thing you mentioned, I just want to touch on very briefly around the kind of co-founder development was even if you know someone previously, a lot of times if you haven't worked with them, that could actually be a really bad thing, right? So I've worked with someone or known someone in a personal setting. And then now you have this kind of work piece, which actually could create this really interesting weird, and potentially awkward dynamic, especially as you kind of the company grows, right? Because if you can't kind of have the same work ethic and logic, then especially through the downtimes, then it might not work out. But I thought that was what you mentioned really made a lot of sense. And then for us, yeah. So related to, for Akko, the thesis, and I think why actually Jared and I kind of both came at it from similar, but actually slightly different mindsets that actually, I think, resulted in the right, the right type of thesis altogether. But he had the initial consumer pain point, right? He had a bad experience. He was running a web design agency, had a lot of electronics, was a person that had warranties on a lot of them, and something broke, had a bad experience. So he was coming at this from the very personal consumer pain point. I've had those experiences in the past, but it wasn't something that was that I was going to kind of be building, but I knew kind of that consumer pain point as well. And so when he was building this, it was, okay, there's a problem and there's I'm able to build a solution using technology and current technology and branding and product design that can really make this make sense. I also, when I connect with him, then really dove into a lot of the market dynamics, understood a lot of the pieces, but I think just amplified the thesis of this space, which is, and it's a lot of times actually somewhat classic disruption or business school disruption types of variables for a market. So there's a few large incumbents that have been around for a while that innovate some, but not at the same, obviously, speed or kind of focus on the customer experience because they never really had to really, really focus on that. It's a very large market, not as sexy, not as desired to go into from a lot of startup tech companies, but it's one that has historically good margin with a few incumbents and a lot of fragmented small to medium-sized players that would love to participate in this market if they had the chance. And so that really formed this understanding that, hey, we can develop a solution and product in the space that where there's a, a big market opportunity, there's modern technology that we know how to kind of implement with good product design, kind of branding and, and flexible products. And then we can really implement this great customer experience using the assets that already exist around the country. So we can utilize the local repair shops or facilities that already exist or this technology layer you know, kind of in the middle. And then we can also enable a lot of partners or potential B2B2C sellers in this space that 
just weren't able to sell us before because they weren't able to get the attention of the big players. Plus they needed some flexibility, some customization. Maybe they want it to be white labeled. Maybe they want a good dashboarding and an API integration. And it's just like some of those kind of simple things that are actually there in other markets just weren't there for a lot of the smaller medium-sized players in this market. And ultimately you kind of can provide this great consumer experience. So those things bubbled together to make it make a lot of sense. And so from the early, early on, we wanted to also make sure that we were, since we did not come from the insurance space or the warranty space, we made sure we kind of surrounded ourselves pretty early with people that knew these markets pretty well, but we were really good at the technology product, that kind of design piece and understanding and listening kind of to the customers and then building for the partners that we knew we wanted to, to work with so that they could sell these products as well. Was the learning curve difficult in regards to, let's say someone spent a career in that specific space that you're in, or you were quickly able to come to grasp and then obviously be able to apply transformational thinking and overlay that? I think that the learning curve is not as steep as there would be with other types of insurance products. So you think about like health insurance, home insurance, some of those are, are a bit more complicated terms of a lot of aspects of it. And so this space, there is learning curves for sure. But I think if you, if we were, what we do is really focus on kind of what we can do best and learn from the people in this space that know it really well. Like for example, early on, we partnered with one of the largest franchises, associations of independent repair shops to really help us kind of get that piece on. So kind of finding the right pieces early on that could help explain to us or handle the things that we needed to get up to speed. The pieces that we knew, which were fairly quick learning curves, were, okay, when someone breaks their device, we need to know very quickly if it's fraud or not. And then we need to know how to get them the fastest and easiest resolution for that. You know, those are things that don't require a ton of knowledge in the space. You just need to kind of have just critical thinking and say, okay, well, this device is broken. What are the ways I can think about getting this resolved? Or how can I just communicate clearly with the customer? So just to make it a, a better experience. Sometimes, you know, communication visibility, good product design, a digital first experience, like those things that you just take from other industries that you could bring into here, those weren't table stakes or weren't there at all for some of the kind of incumbents that existed. And so for us, it was kind of taking some of the very, very easy wins almost. And then while we kind of layered on some of the more complex understandings that you can use partners for initially to help you understand those and then kind of gain that understanding over time. Yeah. And apply basically workflow re-engineering or engineering in this new context. Right. So for listeners, it's just trying to understand your positioning. Did you, from inception, want to set yourselves up as an underwriter of risk? So that could be an MGA, for example. Did you want to warehouse the risk? And the reasons I'm asking this is there are both capital and regulatory considerations that come into play. Yeah. And so for us, at first, we wanted, again, to do what we were best at. And so we wanted to make sure we were working with the right insurance partners so that part of it was taken care of and we could kind of really just prove out that the experience was best while of course gathering data and we're also able to reduce fraud for example from used phones things like that but we kind of we realized pretty early on that we also outsourced some of the claims as well early on the claims handling because again as we were building it we were just building kind of a lot of the pieces we were best at right the workflows those kinds of things but some of the kind of claims management we could out, outsource in the beginning but then pretty early realizing that one of the biggest differentiators is how we handle the claims experience. And so we really need to kind of fully own that part of it. 
so we could use mostly technology to automate a lot of it, but still to manage that you know ourselves. So that allowed us a lot more kind of flexibility and ownership. And I would say there's some complications around kind of what parts you would own versus reinsure. But we knew in, in the beginning, we wanted to make sure we were kind of working with the right partners to make sure that we gathered a lot of the data to prove out the space. But we did have pretty good knowledge of the spaces, high margin. One other difference, pretty big difference about this space is that it's very high volume, low value claims. It's very predictable environment of claims. It's non catastrophic. So meaning if you're in the home insurance space and you're a startup trying to develop a home insurance product, well, if you insure a hundred homes and there happens to be a flood, well, that would put completely out of business if you were even part of that risk. So really getting capacity and getting a lot of capacity, because that's needed from a regulatory perspective, you need a lot of capacity to cover the exposure potential. That was that would be needed really early on from someone in that space. In our space, it's a little bit different. We can work with partners that didn't need to kind of front a ton of that capacity because the exposure is just much, much lower on a per person basis. And then you can get the data and prove it out. So now we have a little more of a complicated structure to work with a few different partners and some things that we will be announcing to next year as well around partnerships. But in general, we this space has more predictability and less exposure to it. So it allows more flexibility in this environment than like what would be a life insurance or health insurance or a home insurance product. Yeah, and this is getting into an area that I love. I'm former options trader, credit trader. And so for people to understand that and sort of how you translate in that world is if you think about what is the expected loss given default, like given the event, right? And so if you think about what you described, a home, if you insure a home, you're going to have a very, very, very low probability of a catastrophic event, right? And so in options term, that's like basically as an insurer, it's like selling a way out of the money option. Right. Right. And so it's very unlikely that it's going to happen. But if it does happen, the expected loss, the expected shortfall conditional on breaching that threshold or the strike price of that option is massive. Right. And so you know, the way you think about pricing that is very different. Right. And that's typically referred to as like, like tail risk. What you're selling or intermediating is risk that's in options terms much more closer to at the money because you know, let's face it like you could drop a phone pretty often throughout the day like some people are just clumsy and they're just going to drop devices or like and they drop a lot <laughs> yeah and the losses conditional on that event are actually not catastrophic right and so and if you layer on top of that the fact that you could still you know, look, the consumer is not running out there with a calculator or some software that's going to exactly compute what should be the risk neutral probability adjusted expected value of that loss, right? And so the premium that you're able to capture well compensates you for the occurrence of that risk. And I find that to be very compelling, right? Theoretically, but also empirically, it seems like you're able to sell a lot or intermediate a lot of these options and make a really good living from doing that. Right. So if I'm thinking about your main targets, customers, and markets, you've talked about how you've essentially evolved your thinking when we had an initial chat and how it's evolved over time in terms of how you think about distribution. I think about the different partners in the ecosystem. Love to hear more about that. And I also want to hear about how you think about 
the stakeholder map of your universe. When you're building a business, you want as many people, you either want to be like growing really fast and being very strong and very well capitalized, or if not, you want something that many other players in the market like, whether it's in your case, like you might just be better at providing the technology that incumbents or other players might not be able to fully grasp. Your workflow reengineering is superior. You have some kind of a secret sauce that makes you very unique and, and hence others need you or they need you to win. So talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. And I'll start on the first question and to your point also probably to help those listening as well, just from a structural standpoint. We launched very practically the first product we had was the idea of a bundled product. So why would you want to buy individual warranties on your TV, your laptop, you have phone insurance through your cell carrier? You know, you have, let's say, five, 10 different items. Why would you want to have these different warranties that all have different claims processes and terms around them? And you're paying per item for all of those. And so that initial pain point was really, the idea was let's solve that with one product. It's $15 a month. And it covers your phone and your other electronics, kind of, and it's designed for that individual. And so initially, that was really that product. We also had a phone-only product, so on a per-phone basis, five to twelve dollars a month. And when we launched those products, we actually knew we wanted to start and had almost to start on a direct consumer basis because no one knew about us in the market, and we wanted to get a lot of credibility and data, both that we were the best experience, but also that we could kind of get directly from customers and really. Oh, and that claims experience and help improve it drastically before we kind of took this platform and technology to channel partners that wanted to sell these products. We wanted to really prove it out ourselves. So we started direct to consumer, developed, continued to improve rapidly the experience, right? And grow the growing that. We then got the best reviews in the industry in terms of from customers on sites like Trustpilot, for example. And also we're top ranked by a lot of independent publishers like Android Central. Benzinga, Investopedia, and others. And so that really got us kind of that credibility that we were looking for, that we could then take to channel partners. So those would be folks like smaller cell carriers called MVNOs or internet service providers or electronic retailers or folks in the insure tech space or in the fintech space or connected home, that we could take these individual protection plans or bundled products and say, hey, you can now offer these because our technology kind of can enable you in a very easy way. And that was really that kind of transition. But it relied at first on us being able to showcase that credibility because especially in something in the kind of protection space, they want to make sure that you are going to be reliable and provide that good experience for customers because otherwise their reflection of their brain is bad, right? They're going to kind of get this bad brain reflection on them and potentially even hurt their retention or other things if they if customers then cancel off or want to switch providers from whatever they're providing to someone else. So in your world, right, who is really interested in making sure that you win, that you prevail, right? Like who are the bigger players that are going to be supportive of this new entrant solving something for them? So probably first and foremost, the customer, right? Like they... The customer wants to have the best experience possible. When their device breaks, they want to make sure they have they have a really great understanding and communication of what's going on. They have a very fast, very digital filing experience. So you don't have to call someone or wait or, or take kind of provide a ton of ton of information that's not necessarily needed. And then the resolution is super fast as well. 
right? So they're actually back on their feet. And this really terrible experience because we rely on our devices every day and even more and more so, right? Society is only advancing to rely on our devices more and more every day. And so they want to get that experience out of their mind and move on with their lives. So I think customers first and foremost, and that's really where we start with a lot of our design and mindset as well. But then the partner is just as important, right? Because they are really wanting to make sure they can both provide products that can make them money, but also provide a great brand experience and retention as well. And potentially engage opportunities for engagement too. But you would, the partner wants to make sure that this is what they want to offer. And so we've certainly had folks that have switched to us as a provider or new folks that wouldn't have had access to this market otherwise because they're just too small or, or they wanted something a little more custom or, or white labeled or what have you. And we can then kind of enable them to you know, offer products in this space. And I think the third would be repair shops and kind of some of these ecosystem partners that want to work with someone that's more innovative. So because we don't own any physical assets ourselves, we don't own any repair facilities where we kind of take the devices that people would send to us. We really try and focus our claims experience primarily on local repair. If a device is repairable, then the best experience we found for a lot of customers is to go into the closest shop to them, as long as that shop is vetted, kind of approved, and we know that shop is guaranteeing the repair, it's high quality parts, and that's kind of part of our you know, process. But those shops, that they also really value us being in this market and sending repairs to them. So we kind of partners we work with, and the insurance partners even that we work with, right? Like they kind of want you know, us to win because we're kind of a new entry in here that's really allowing some of the established ecosystem to be spread out because a lot of people would just kind of switch to us here. Yeah, that makes sense. And that is why I would think about businesses in that sense. And again, when I remember this actually started, I had a conversation with someone I respect a lot as a venture capitalist in Austin. And he said what he drew from his first experience and very successful experience as an entrepreneur that then led him to start a fund was you need to think about all the stakeholders and all the participants in a given market. And the more people want you to win, the more successful you will be. Like Otherwise, you're going down the Amazon route and the odds of making it that big are slim to none, right? And so do you really want to go out and build the next Amazon? Probably not, right? It's just from on a risk-adjusted basis, it's just impossible. But in your case, you're solving across multiple dimensions. Like you're actually improving the end customer experience. You're doing it either directly or you're doing it for others and incumbents. And you're allowing businesses and ecosystems that would naturally have access to this kind of customer base to jump into a new opportunity. So you're actually going to help them generate incremental value and revenue. So there's a lot of alignment there and that sets you up for what is a good success there. How do you think about pricing along all these dimensions and how you deliver the technology and the infrastructure? And is that evolving over time? Like, How do you think about justifying the value add and pricing in a way that's sustainable and that's going to offer you as presumably a large shareholder and your co-founder, but as well as investors, the incremental enterprise value that accrues to this project? Yeah. And the pricing is super important. I think one of the advantages of this space is that with that predictability, as you've mentioned with options trading, right? With more predictability allows you 
just better confidence in the prices you can offer. And this space has actually been around for a while, right? So there's actually a good amount of data and understanding of some of the margins, but also we've utilized technology and our own understanding of preventing fraud and helping to automate this claims experience to then come up with pricing even further. And then in also in collaboration with insurance partners we work with. And so it is, there's a mix of, you want to be appropriate to what customers would expect. So part of our value prop is since we're really using a lot of technology, much less overhead, you know, as a result, of course, neobanks, et cetera, right? Anyone with kind of a lot less assets and physical infrastructure and overhead, they can offer the same product for less and still make good margin. So there's an aspect of that for sure. So we can actually, you know, price a little bit more competitively than some of our competitors. But that also a little bit depends. So that's one aspect of the pricing. We have a lot of data. So we also kind of know what that price can look like. And it's very predictable. And I think the third aspect is really thinking about the goals of the partner that we're working with. And I think that's one of the unique aspects, again, with to your question before, the stakeholders, bringing value to partners and saying, okay, based on your goals, we can actually be a little flexible with what you're looking for. Are you looking to make money on this as much? Or are you looking to provide potentially the best value to customers and at the cheapest rates for them? Or you want to potentially even improve, or you also want to make money, but you're actually looking for a high attachment rate of this. And so you're comfortable with certain coverage limits or things that might be different. And so being flexible with partners to say, okay, well, we might, in this case, we're going to cover a phone with no claim limit. It's just the value of the device versus this partner that might want a lower claim limit because it's still valuable for their customer base, but it doesn't need to be full coverage for every claim that might happen. Those things and that flexibility allows you to still, you mirror the pricing with our data to then understand the partner's goals to make sure it's the right product. And then there's also some natural iteration that we are comfortable with with partners over time. Because as you kind of gather data, again, with the predictability in this space, you can then, and because claims do happen a lot more often, you actually get a lot more data faster. And so you're able to then use that to work with folks on a faster rate to make sure you're iterating on the best solution for for them and for you. Have you thought about creating more subscription-like or within bands for some of your partners or not? Like bands meaning like for a five to seven dollars for this product or seven to nine for this product or no I'm just saying like in terms of if you have a highly predictable so not totally recurring but like co-occurring or so similar to payments flow of activity and it's highly predictable basically selling it almost like as a subscription, right? Or is it not does it not lend itself to that? I'm thinking more in the white label configuration or working with partners and can you get closer to a SaaS model or do you have to stay within the insurance premium baseline model? Yes. I'm really glad you brought that up actually. That is one of the learnings we had and it's a great like inclination you kind of have to ask that question but even but one of the learnings we had was throughout even the early part but then especially with partners is a lot of the really value we have is in the underlying platform and technology and we are comfortable to your point when we call it like platform as a service so we do absolutely offer our platform as a service and that would be much more of, of that like SaaS type model we are kind of in that i think phase now where exploring what parts of the platform are most valuable to which types of partners but that is certainly one area that we've we think is a, a big part of the future of the company as well 
and just ultimately allowing flexibility for partners uh, in that. Because to your point, as it gets more predictable, there's more flexibility there. And really, if we have the best kind of platform technology, we partners can truly own what they would like to see with the program in that sense, and then be pretty uniquely positioned to offer that. So that's something that I think we're pretty unique that we would be wanting to continue to do because at its really at its core, we focus on our platform and technology and kind of design of the platform being really superior in the space. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. And I think ultimately, right, the what's important when you start thinking about embedding or essentially becoming a cost of goods sold to others by construction going to significantly enhance your distribution and reach in ways where you're leveraging others' strength and specifics and their ability to go to market. But at the same time, from a business model perspective, because you are a cost of goods sold, it's important to make it as seamless as possible for those partners so that it essentially becomes a no-brainer where, look, they know there's a cost, but ultimately, once it's humming along, it's very, very hard to take it out, right? Because you become such an essential piece. Like if you think about the ultimate example of that is cloud and Azure and Amazon Web Services, big, big, big cost of goods sold component to the point now it's actually becoming almost a problem. There's a lot of companies out there trying to figure out how to wean themselves off of it because it's become very pricey. But what I'm trying to say is when you get into these business models that are very compelling, because if you could pull it off, the leverage, the operating leverage you have from that based on the technology that you've able to build over time, where obviously you've developed an edge, you're allowing an existing workflow to be processed in a much more efficient manner. You have expertise that others are willing to part their money with in exchange for that technology, right? Again, it goes back to, can you tidy and clean up your house? Of course you can. But depending on what your opportunity cost of time is, then you're probably going to hire a housekeeper, right? And the reason for that is not that you can't do it. It's just, it's a better use of your time. So this applies to you know, embedded services. It applies to data. And in this case, it aggregates many different things, probably including the data itself. Right. And I would clarify also very briefly on like the COGS piece. I think for certain partners, it would be kind of more of a COGS for them to operate. But in general, it would be us being okay with someone taking actually more of the revenue because they want more flexibility in what their goals are might be separate from this product itself. Like they want to be able to offer this product, potentially have ultimate flexibility because then is it helps retention or in general, like users or revenue, even if from the, so it's not necessarily there. It's a cogs in the sense that let's say it's a cogs for a big insurance company that wanted to, it was already offering this product and they, they wanted to enhance their experience. But in really theory, it'd be more of a revenue driver because it'd be an additional service, additional product they'd be able to offer. Yeah. Makes sense. So this conversation would not be complete. And I'd like to close on that because it's topical. We're in a tough fundraising environment. It's tough not because there's a dearth of necessarily liquidity. It's very much sitting on the sidelines for reasons that have to do with Economics 101. The opportunity cost of capital is very high. It's much higher than it was a couple of years ago, certainly when you started. So I'd like to get your thoughts on what the journey was from a fundraising standpoint, how capital efficient you are. I'm hearing more and more folks out there at different stages that are starting to talk in terms of 
we're optimizing for margins, not top line growth. I'm wondering where you fall in that spectrum, where you are in your fundraising journey, and how has that been so far? Yeah, happy to talk about that. Yeah, so we, just for context, where we've been, so we raised our seed round in 2021 and our Series A in 2022, so last year. Total uh, fundraising right around 15 million. And so for us, was actually nice was that from the beginning, we had to have pretty good unit economics and good understanding of unit economics. So that was the nice thing was that even from the beginning, we already had that situation. And so again, going back to the predictability of the space, we obviously monitor things very closely and are constantly trying to improve, but that was something that was that was inherently there. So for us, it was really about, okay, now that we have the funding from last year and really pushing forward, we want to make sure that we are growing to be, to kind of get towards cash flow profitability, right? And so that's the kind of clear path we're on. And we have a very, very clear path, heads down execution towards that. And we know we have no concerns really with that. And then it's really thinking about even before then or after opportunistically, how you think about the trade-offs of depending on the market environment and where we're at with the company, what specifically we would you kind of use an additional infusion of money for relative to the cash that you're generating, um, the balance sheet we have, and that kind of combination at the time. We certainly have a few different things we know we could absolutely add towards or go after additional that would we don't have the kind of capacity currently, given both a lot of the channel partner work and interest and uh, integrations we're working on, but also just from the team size we have. But the kind of environment has changed a lot from our seed round to our Series A, because we did our seed round again in 2021 and our Series A 2022. And so we certainly, I think that was a notable difference. And also obviously what, what kind of the difference in investors are looking for right around seed, which is in general, much more around, as you mentioned, kind of team and the kind of problem pain point vision market. You know, Do they kind of believe you can be the right team to solve something in this big market? And series A is what kind of what have you done so far to really do that? And where are you going? What's the kind of, what's the path forward and the repeatable scalable process there? So that's where we've been, but is uh, I think currently, yes, much more on everyone's focusing obviously now on, on getting towards profitability and then also having good unit economics, which is something that we're lucky enough to kind of have from the beginning in that sense, because that was a focus for ours in the beginning, because it was a little bit poor to actually our business itself. If you don't have good unit economics in the beginning, that is a bad sign because it's a predictable environment. And so you should have pretty high degree of confidence early on in the underlying economics of the business. Yeah. And you'd be surprised how many early stage ideas are generically trying to solve for a problem. They have a rough idea. And sometimes they do get funded on the basis of, hey, this team like looks like it has a good pedigree. And, but they don't actually do the hard work that it sounds like you guys did from the get-go. It's almost like, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm hearing that you went in there and you're like, we founders need to make sure that our unit economics are sound. We don't feel comfortable going ahead unless we know that part is solid, right? Because at least we've got that foundation. Then it, it boils down to execution, with this, which is no small feat. But at least we know that if we do implement, this is what we're going to get out of it, right? Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. From the early days, you know, we knew that the only way this kind of makes sense at scale is if it also makes sense early on, which is nice about our space is that it is because it's more predictable, you can know that. But yes, you're exactly right. I think that it was almost because 
this was both of my co-founders and mine first venture back business. We've both done separate you know, businesses before, but I think that and the fact that we've done different businesses before, been involved in different businesses before, without this being our first venture back business, even though I was also in kind of the venture studio, we had an idea. Of, we, we of course knew about kind of the, the venture cycle and how you can kind of, you know go to be profitable much later on. But I think the unit economics has always really stood out to us because that's just kind of for us to like very foundational to what's important is this actually a business that to your point is worthwhile us pursuing and us not spending you know years going because we want to make sure we have a good business whether or not we can raise money or not we want to make sure that the business is is really strong that's the right way to look at it and it's a great way to close on this conversation i've enjoyed this i like seeing a clear plan and a clear path with determination rigor in establishing, to your point, unit economics, understanding exactly how to execute throughout the phases. And the problem is very, very clear, right? It's crystal clear and highly understandable. So I've really enjoyed this. I think you guys are on to something pretty exceptional here. I'm looking forward to keeping track of the trajectory. And it's certainly been very insightful for me. So thank you for that. Yeah, thanks, Maxine. Really, really appreciate it. It's great chatting with you about this. This podcast is produced by Rado Venture Management, LLC, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, not investment advice.